Women making waves. I had to get up at the crack of dawn this morning. Mm-hmm. Why? Because my husband and some of his friends are going out for the day, out to Doncaster to the races. Some I don't know somebody's birthday, and they were given a day out. So I was elected as the one who was to go round this morning, picking them up and taking them to the station. So that that was the start of my day. So my Saturday started very, very early. Like Monday to Friday, basically. So no Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Although it's quite good because it gets you up and about. Mm. But let me talk about my my away day. My away day was last weekend and with my neighbours who have become my good friends. That's what's happened, actually, thinking about it, that I've got to know my neighbours a lot better because of lockdown and we can talk to each other because we're so near. And we've become really good friends. Really good friends. So much so that we had an away day last week in London. Mm. I know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic it was. We we stayed in this very nice cheap hotel in London and it was really that's nice. That's not an away day, that's an away night. Oh, I suppose. That's what we call a weekend. Well, yeah, because I suppose it was Friday night and we came back on Saturday. So, yeah, maybe it was away weekend, one-nighter, basically. And it was fantastic. Hmm. One of our friends is really good at organising events and, and so she organised our day. We went to an exhibition. What else did we do? We went to a food-tasting evening. So, yeah, it was brilliant. And so, yeah, we had a very nice away day and away Very evening. nice. It was very nice, actually. Good to be with friends and have a chat and a laugh. And, I, you know, I suppose in many ways that's what lockdown and pandemic has done for me. I don't know about you, Linda, but do you find that you get to know your neighbours a little bit better now because of this? No. No. In okay. fact, the people, people <laughs> on one side of me have never met at all because they've just moved in. And, you know, when you get to that point, I yeah. don't know if you've, been like this Mm. you get to the point where you've left it so long to knock on the door and go hello you're new here they're not really new anymore (laughs) they've been here for months and I've got to that point where it's a bit late and I'm now at that point of going I can't really say hello anymore so I just haven't done it so if you can help me out of this predicament that would be kind of useful what do I do I think just go around say hello how are Mm -hmm. you how have you settled in in the last who are you in the last 20 years (laughs) That might help. Yes. (laughs) You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. So another two great women to talk to today, Councillor Anna Smith who has just been elected the leader of the council. I'm looking forward to listening to what she has to say. I think I think it'll be very interesting to find out how she got into politics and find out the backstory. So looking forward to chatting to her. Mm, absolutely. And next up, we'll hear from Professor Morag Stiles. And this is really interesting because she is Professor of Children's Poetry. Now, I haven't heard of that before. Have you, Linda? I suppose I hadn't thought about it, actually, but it doesn't surprise me that there is one. When you think about writing, there's always a a professor of this type of writing and that type of writing, so it doesn't really surprise me. Mm. But she's going to be speaking to Jan Moore.
Women Making Waves. We welcome Councillor Anna Smith to Women Making Waves today. Anna is due to become leader of Cambridge City Council at the beginning of December this year. Anna says that the reason she became a councillor was because she simply turned up to meetings after she became frustrated about things like coalition policies. Anna wanted to get involved in helping Labour in Cambridge and attended a curry night one evening for by the Coleridge Ward in Cambridge where Anna lived, expecting only to perhaps deliver some leaflets. Well, that led to quite an interesting journey for Anna and today we'll delve into Anna's path to becoming leader of Cambridge City Council. Hello Anna, thank you for joining us today. Not thank at all, you. lovely to meet you. Well, I think one of the things we wanted to ask you first of all is your dismay around social injustice started when you were very young. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I was about 10, my dad got ME and I mean still that's something that people don't always understand and back then it was something people really didn't understand at all. So to most people he was a slacker, he was making it up. But what I saw was someone that couldn't work, was desperate to work, could barely get out of bed at certain times. And that, that carried on right through my teenage years. Now, as a result, he had to give up work. He went on to benefits. My mum had to give up her teaching job because it was difficult for him to be at home on his own um, very much. So things were pretty tight and they were amazing. And they made sure that everything I needed in terms of the love and the support was there but I saw just how difficult that was for them and particularly for my dad because the other thing was that no one treated him like he had anything useful to say or contribute Mm. so Mm. it wasn't just about being ill it was also about the fact suddenly he was seen as a a complete non-person particularly when he had to be in a wheelchair so I saw all this and then I remember turning on the tv seeing the Tory party conference, um, particularly remember Peter Lilly's little list, and realised they were talking about people like my dad. They were saying people like my dad were shirkers who were trying to kind of somehow scam off the state. And I was absolutely furious. And that really stayed with me, just that sense that whatever I did with my life, and I, it wasn't politics immediately, it was teaching, but I wanted to do something that made a difference. And that, that really, really stayed with me. When we say very young age, how old were you? What was the first time you remembered feeling like this? So I was 10. Mm. So I was still at primary school. There'd been a fire at the school and we were having a um, a little yard sale in someone's house. I remember Dad coming to pick me up and he clearly had really struggled to just walk around the corner to pick me up from my friend's house. And that was the first time I noticed it. And he didn't really improve until I was in my mid-20s. So that was... 10 to 15 years and the impact on him and the impact on his self-esteem and he's a really clever guy and he's got so much to give but he was just treated as if he had nothing to contribute from that point on really. Gosh it's terrible isn't it? You were the first in your family to go to university is that right? That's right so my dad's mum had won a place at a grammar school sometime like early 1900s And she couldn't go because they couldn't afford the uniform. My mum's father, there were several of them in the family. The oldest one got to go to school. All the other ones had to leave school at 14 to pay for it. So when I went to university, it felt very much as if it wasn't just about me. It was about all those people who Mm. really deserved that chance. 
And because of what society was like then, they didn't have it. So I always had this strong sense of um, of being there for them. And in fact, I had... So my parents did a lot of family research when I was a very young child. So when I was under 10. And they'd found a story of a relative who was in a little village called Lindsdale, which is one of the Essex villages. And he was a shepherd. And he'd moved about 100 yards up the road to another house. And he got TB. And so his wife goes along to the parish kind of authorities, this 19th century, and they say, well, sorry, your husband's in Stebbing now. You, we can't give you any money because he's moved. And we've got the paperwork to all this. So she goes to Stebbing and they say, hasn't been here long enough. You have to move him back to Linzel. And he's a dying man. Mm. And they weren't going to give him any money to keep him alive until I think the vicar stepped in and allowed him to stay in his house until he died with some support. And he was a shepherd. And so because of that, I had a little tiny kind of 1970s plastic farm toy shepherd that I sat on my computer at university just as that reminder about why I was there and how many people didn't have those chances. Gosh, it's hard. It's really hard. As you say, you're taking everything on board when you go to university. So it's not just for you. You're you're taking reasons and, and motives to go. Did you find that your parents were, I'm sure your parents were very enthused that you went to Oxford. Were they very proud of you in the sense that did they think that you were going to do something very good? Parents are always proud of their kids, aren't they? <laughs> um, so, yes. And I mean, they, they used to love it. And they I, I sang with the chapel choir. So they used to come up to a lot of um, services. They really loved the music. It was it was it was a really special time, and yeah, they they were really proud. Mm. I can imagine because yeah. not not just going to university, Anna, but going to Oxford. That is not doing anything at half measures, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that must have been quite incredible. Did did it spur you on then? What happened when you were ten and, and when you were growing up and with your dad? Did that spur you on to work harder at school? Because you must have had extremely high marks to get into Oxford. I think. I think one of the things you grow up with when, when you appreciate that you're very lucky to be in the position you're in in terms of having the opportunities is how education is education's the way out. Mm-hmm. So I knew that my parents weren't going to be able to have the money to, to kind of back me in any other way. What they could give me was the opportunity for education. Now, I, I look back and I realised that they probably went without an awful lot mm. so that I could have the books I needed or we could go and see the play that I was studying for A-level or, or whatever it was. And they always prioritised that. But I grew up with that really strong sense that education is the way forward. Yeah. So I, I think that's probably a lot to do with it. And also I'm, I'm quite... If someone tells me I can't do something, I, I tend to... <laughs> it tends to really spur me on. And I remember having a conversation with somebody um, when I was about 16 and I said, oh, I, I want to read History at Oxford. And this person whose child was going to a very smart school, very prestigious um, public school, said, oh, well, you know, in effect, people like you don't go to colleges like that. Wow. And I was... Right, that was it, you know. <laughs> Yes, I get that. <laughs> God, that's shocking, isn't it? What makes me really interested is that your your dad obviously was suffering quite a bit with ME and you went off university. Did you not feel a pull to stay with them to look after them or did they give you that inspiration to say you must go ahead and do this? Quite frankly, they'd have killed me <laughs> if, if, I, if I hadn't taken that up. And I mean, yes, that was, that was never something that they put any pressure on me to do. No. 
no, I was I was very fortunate there. I never had that pressure. Yeah, yeah. And did you enjoy your time at Oxford, Anna? I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a strange time at first because there aren't that many people there. Or certainly at the time, there weren't that many people there from um, particularly state comprehensives. Mm-hmm. But it was um it was a massive leveler. You know, you were there, and actually, the thing I remember most was just there were an awful lot of people who, like me, had been a bit of the class SWAT. And we just had this this thing in common that we were all the ones who had been kind of sitting there getting on with the work and, you know, behaving ourselves and being very conformist. And, um, yeah, I made some brilliant friends. I got quite involved in music. That was such an amazing privilege. Um, I mean, Merton Chapel has got one of the best acoustics probably anywhere in the country. And I got to sing there every week and I got to sing some solos there. And it was just, it was a wonderful time and it is a beautiful city as well. I mean, obviously not as beautiful as Cambridge, but <laughs> still a beautiful city. <laughs> yeah, two beautiful cities, absolutely. Tell us then, Anna, what happened after university? What did you do? So a lot of people, I think, went into their undergraduate degree knowing what they wanted to do at the end of it. You know, I'm going to go and do my degree. I'll be a lawyer, I'll be whatever. And I was one of those people who hadn't really thought that through and I had various ideas of things I might like to do. So I took a gap year after university. I volunteered, did some lay assistant work in a, in a local church. I worked in a local nursery group to get some money. And it just dawned on me that everything that I did that I really loved was teaching. And I'd learnt recorder and clarinet when I was, um, so like Baroque recorder, you know, when I, when I was a, a teenager. And I'd started teaching to get a bit of extra money. So rather than having a Saturday job in a shop, I would do one-to-one tuition. And I just realised I love teaching. I really enjoy teaching. So I went to the secondary school just around the corner, did some um, volunteering work. And then I applied for my PGCE and I applied for that in Cambridge because I really liked the course there. And yeah, I loved it. It was 18 years I was in schools and I'm still working in education in more of a kind of advisory way now. But yeah, absolutely loved it. And was that your first job at, at Hills Road? Sixth first job was at Hills Road. Yes. So and again, you know, some people said, oh, you know, Sixth Form College for your first job. I'm not sure where you'll see that going with a career, you know. And it was, <laughs> I had a wonderful 13 years there, did all sorts of different things, worked with some, well, not say some, every single student I worked with was just such a pleasure to work with. And it's still one of the greatest pleasures of my life if I get an email from somebody that I taught saying that perhaps something I'd done had been helpful for them. As a teacher, that's always the thing yeah. that just kind of makes you get up in the morning, really. So I spent 13 years there and then I went on to be deputy principal at the Parkside Federation, helped set up Parkside Sits. So, yeah, I had a wonderful 18 years primarily working with sixth form students in, in different ways. So from there, you obviously felt the need while you were in Cambridge that you wanted to become or you were frustrated enough to want to become involved in local politics. Tell us how you got to that stage where you suddenly realised you were becoming involved with the goings on of politics in Cambridge. Well, it was quite quick. So I've always I mean, I've, I've always been Labour. It's it's always been my ideology. I've always called myself a socialist since probably kind of my mid-teens when I started working out what all of this was. But, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't live in Cambridge for quite a long time. I couldn't afford to. I was commuting in for quite a while. 
Then when I finally managed to kind of afford something in Cambridge, it was around about the time of the coalition government. And I just, you know, I, I just started to think I've got to do something. It can't just be down to other people. I, I ought to get involved. And, and you, you mentioned this at the beginning. So I thought, well, you know, maybe deliver some leaflets. You know, maybe maybe a bit of door knocking, but obviously, you know, I won't be very good at that. I'll need I'll need a bit of help. So maybe that should be a bit later. So the ward that I live in, Coleridge Ward, um, was having a fundraising curry night. So I went along, had a lovely time, spoke to lots of people. And at the end of that, one of the city councillors in Romsey, um, Dave, came and sat opposite me. Dave Beijing, city councillor for Romsey. Have you ever thought about being a candidate? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then it all moved really fast. And it, it felt like before I knew it, there I was having been in a, in a panel, which is where they, they work out whether you're you're kind of good to go for the local party and then in a selection meeting. And there I was, the, the city council candidate. And it was probably a good thing it was really quick. I didn't have time to think about it, but I've never regretted it for a moment. It's yeah. been such an amazing part of my life. And has it taken over your life, Anna? You know, is that mainly what you think about or do you have other hobbies going on as well? It's it's a bit difficult to keep big hobbies going alongside all that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people have a paid job and a counsellor's. I mean, you're probably aware we aren't paid. We get a small allowance and it really is very small. But there isn't really time for a lot of other things. So things like my music, I do a lot less of that these days. Do get the chance. I don't want to sound like Theresa May here, but the one thing that I do get the chance to do a lot of still is walking. And of course, that's really nice. You get out, you get the exercise, you keep fit. And so my husband and myself actually went on a on a pretty long distance walk for our honeymoon, actually, um, in the Black Forest. Wow. <laughs> Lovely. That, is, that would have miles. been a long walk, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was, but it was it was great. So, yes, it does take over quite a lot of your time, but that's as it should be, because what we're doing is it is so important. Yeah. I mean, nobody goes into being a counsellor for an easy life. No one goes into it for the money. You do it because... Oh my goodness, to represent the people in the area you live. That's such a privilege. From going from Romsey, give us a short explanation from your journey from Romsey, becoming City Council of Romsey, to really where you are now. As I said, you are going to be leader of the Cambridge City Council at the beginning of December. That little gap between 2015 and now, can you give us a sort of a brief understanding of how it how it led to today really <laughs> i think it's, it's just one of those things isn't it that one thing leads to another and i, I yeah. think the doors just all seem to open at the right points so again when i became a counselor i was like right all i'm going to do I'm, I'm not all because it's really important but i'm going to do my casework my ward work i'm not going to take on lots of extra stuff just going to do this and that didn't work out either because first of all i became um lead counselor for cycling and had some really interesting experiences doing that. And then I ended up putting myself forward as an executive councillor, so holding a portfolio for streets and open spaces in the, in the first instance. And again, I had people around me encouraging me. And I think one of the things I, I think is really important is that people do ask women to put themselves forward and to stand. Because I'd say at every stage of my political journey, I would have assumed that I wasn't really good enough and that I'm sure there are other people with better experiences that should be doing it instead. And I think there's a whole campaign called Ask Her to Stand, trying to get women to say, have you thought about this? 
do you realize you could do that and i think that's really important because again i wouldn't have stood as an exec counselor if i hadn't had current exec counselors saying you could do this Mm. you have something to contribute so i did that and then i switched to executive counselor for communities and that was the same time as i became deputy leader so that's been a few years doing that. And then um, Lewis announced that he was planning to stand down. So I did a lot of a lot of thinking, really. And it was really thinking around whether I was the right person for the job. I didn't just want to think around whether I might get it. It was very much around, if I got it, would I be right? Because I didn't want to put myself forward if I wasn't the right person. So I did a lot of soul searching and I just felt I'm going to have a try. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see if, if Labour Group feel that I'm the right person to lead. I think I have some things to offer. So I put myself forward. We had a, a kind of quite intense little short campaign, really. I mean, it felt a little bit like a miniature version, I guess, of Standing for Parliament because we had to do a hustings to the constituency Labour Party. And they didn't have a vote, but they really put us through our paces. And then we had to do a similar thing for Labour Group or a Labour Group made the call now technically they don't vote for council leader of course they vote for the leader of labor group but the vote for council leader won't take place until the 30th of november and so i'm not i think technically i'm not leader elect it's just that as we have a majority <laughs> yes that's likely to be the way the things go <laughs> it's really interesting what you said anna earlier about supporting women and encouraging women to step forward really and step up and I think you're absolutely right and I think it's great that there are people doing that but I wonder why we need to particularly do that you don't get groups like that for men that you don't need them what is it with women that we need to be pushed forward slightly I know and I, I do have that feeling myself sometimes I think you know maybe we should just do it and not need that but actually the reality is a lot of mm. women do need that I needed that yeah and I, I don't know what it is I suspect it's the way that I say the way we've been brought up I don't mean that in a very specific that's what our parents did to us but I think it's the whole way that society shapes you I suspect mm. Mm. and well it's the classic thing isn't it if, if, if a woman says something she's bossy or aggressive if a man says the same thing yeah. he's assertive and a great leader yeah. and it's there's a little bit of that I think but it's um I think it's just really important I mean we've got some really really amazing women on the city council and in almost every example I can think of somebody had to say please stand and they're astonishingly good really fantastic is there one thing that stands out in your political career over the last few years that stands out as something that you're really particularly proud of that you draw forward I think I'd probably have to point to two things actually and neither of them I could say that was just me because it's always a team effort. It's a team effort amongst councillors and with officers. But I was really proud to be in charge of bereavement services when we got rid of funeral fees for under 15s. And that was really special and huge credit to the officers there because they did all the groundwork on that. And I just took the credit. I mean, that was, but it was a real, I was really, really proud to have been part of that. And I remember saying, if I get, voted out in the next election now I don't care because there's something that I can point to and say you know I signed that off Um, and I think the other thing has to be the work we've done together as a city over the pandemic the communities team have been absolutely at the heart of that and what they've set up has been this really 
really fantastic cooperative system where it very much hasn't been us going in and saying we are the council we are the experts this is what we're all going to do it was very much working in partnership working with mutual aid groups working with voluntary groups working with faith groups with local businesses and trying to come up with a system that meant that people were supported that people had help and particularly that people had enough to eat and what's emerged from that the system of food hubs is something that in some form we're going to want to go forward with i mean we were we were funding a form of it before the pandemic anyway in terms of a kind of central food distribution hub that we just put the funding in for in the budget about three weeks before the pandemic hit but knowing that i've played a part in that is really special and it's a great team effort because i wasn't able to get out and about for much of the lockdown um, my mother was having um, treatment for leukemia at the time so we had to be incredibly careful but there was so much I could do from the sofa yes. to help shape that. Right. So it felt a real a real team effort. What would you say, Anna, to a younger generation who are thinking about getting into politics, local politics or national politics? Would you go about doing what you've done to get to where you are in a different way or the same way? I think that's a really interesting question. So I, I've been lucky. I, I've done a couple of training schemes that have really helped me over the years, one of which... I was in the first cohort of the Joe Cox Women in Leadership course that was set up by the Labour Party in memory of of Joe Cox MP. And I've also been involved in a mentoring scheme with the Fabians. And one of the things that's taught me is there isn't any one right way to get involved in politics. And certainly there isn't like you have to be a councillor, you have to stand for something. There's all sorts of ways you can contribute and you can do some really amazing things. So... One of my friends from the Joe Cox course has sent, uh, set up this amazing charity called Glitch, which is challenging um, online abuse. And th- the role that that charity has had has been amazing. So there's no one route. And I'd also say there's no one route to, if you do want to stand for office. Some people will know that really early. And mm. there's there's a wonderful councillor in, in Hertfordshire, Tina, who is really young and she's amazing and she's so on it I don't think you have to have clocked up a certain number of years experience I also don't think you only can do it when you're younger but the one bit of advice I had that was really powerful for me was when we were doing the Joe Cox course Harriet Harman came to talk to us and of course she was there flying the flag for feminism and for women in parliament when there were very few women in parliament Mm. and she said you will always be told as a woman that it's not the right time you'll be told (laughs) you're too young then you'll be told oh you've got kids why don't you wait and then you'll be told maybe you're too old or you're too busy or whatever and she said it will always be the wrong time and it is never the wrong time just do it And that's really stayed with me. And I think that's probably the bit of advice I'd want to pass on. That's a great piece of advice, actually. It is. Would you ever consider going national then and standing as an MP? I mean, right now, what I want to be is leader of the council. And that's that's not a kind of fudge answer. That's because Cambridge City is so important. And I've said this a couple of times to people that have asked, this is not a... I don't believe that being a leader of a council is a springboard 
it's not a stage in some plan it's a job in itself and that's the job I'm focusing on <laughs> and that's that's what I want to do well at. Everyone wants to find out a bit more about social media. It's It, it could be a dragon for most people, or it, or it could be something that you really should be harnessing. How do you find social media plays with you in all your roles and all your colleagues? Do you find it something that is a bit like Marmite? Do I have to do it? Or, you know, it's quite a necessity in many ways, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I do Twitter. I don't I don't do Facebook. I mean, I, I have a Facebook account that is strictly private. It's strictly for finding the person I was at school with or <laughs> connecting in that way. I don't I but I, I've I've had a Twitter account for a while. I actually really like Twitter. I'm probably a bit addicted to it. I, I tend to be one of those people that scrolls the whole time. Mm-hmm. I think it's got its up and down sides. I've seen people really abused on social media. I think it's one of those forums where People don't always disagree with kindness or with mutual respect. The social media companies need to step in more quickly on trolling and abuse, mm. absolutely definitely. I, I know counsellors that won't, you know, won't touch with the barge pole. For me, I, I, I quite like it. What I would say is that I absolutely already, having been announced as, as likely to be leader come 1st of December, I can see why a lot of MPs have written across the top of their profile casework please to this email address because my notifications now are such that I miss masses yeah yeah because I'm getting so many and so yeah if there's anyone out there who sent me a message and wonders why I never replied just send me an email (laughs) because I'm more likely to see it (laughs) but I really notice that you can't have those kind of off-the-cuff conversations in the way that perhaps I could when I was standing for the council because there were far few people interested in what I had to say Mm. yeah Yeah, I know having spoken to a local MP a couple of years back and she was talking about social media and saying the trolling was just awful. And I think women particularly get picked on a lot of the time. I very much noticed that. You can have men and women maybe saying or doing the same thing and women will just get pushed a lot harder. It's only happened to me really badly once and it was really awful. Luckily it was a relatively short duration but I could see if you were getting it out the whole time and yeah. I, you know, I know people that have had death threats through social mm. media. It's yeah, it, it can be very toxic. So I've I've been reasonably lucky. I've I've I said I've only experienced really bad trolling once in my political career. Mm. On a more cheerful note, <laughs> I notice I notice Anna that you're a member of Camera, the campaign for real ale. You like the odd pint then, do you? I do, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm a particular aficionado of Belgian beer. Oh, so wow, I can, I can, it's I can, lovely. I can, I, I can give you a good lecture on different types of um, different types of beer, which the best ones are. <laughs> yeah, and um, it, it fits in with another one of my of my real loves, which is cycling. So one of the things that I really love to do is, is to go to a, a Belgian town or city, stay there, hire a bike, cycle around, have some nice food. And it's, yeah, it kind of all fits it together really nicely. Oh, that does sound rather nice, actually. Is that your ideal holiday? One of them. I think probably long distance walking possibly has slightly pipped it at the post these days. But it's it's a really close thing between between cycling holidays and walking holidays. But something that's active where you see the countryside around you and you really earn a nice dinner as well. 
Yeah. That's perfect. I like food. Um, <laughs> so so doing some exercise in order to get it is probably quite a good thing. And there's been a bit less of that in COVID and a few of my dresses are a little tight as a result. <laughs> Anna Smith, it's been fantastic to talk to you today. It really has. You've just yeah, been, been amazing. Anna Smith, thank you so much for talking to us here at Women Making Waves. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to be meeting Professor Morag Styles. We'll be talking about children's poetry and her love of the genre. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Missed the bus and must make that urgent appointment? Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715 715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk CKLG Accountants your partner in business your partner in life Cambridge 105 Radio You can listen to our interviews by visiting womenmakingwaves.co.uk So today I'm going to have a chat with Morag Styles, who has this wonderful title, Professor of Children's Poetry. (laughs) So this should give us an opportunity to explore that a bit further, because I really have no idea what that entails. (laughs) So Morag, tell me a little bit about how you became the Professor of Children's Poetry. Well, the first time I went into a primary classroom, I found myself doing poetry with them. I loved it doing it. I mean, I just loved it. I loved the children's response. I love poetry, obviously, but I loved the children's responses. And it wasn't just what they had to say about the poem or wanting to read it themselves. It was also the work I was doing, getting children to write their own poetry. And the very first book I wrote was about children writing their own poetry. So it's been my passion and I've come at children's poetry from almost every angle. I mean, obviously as a teacher, then when I stopped teaching at school and I was teaching at Homerton College, I used to run a Saturday morning poetry club. I did that for six years. 
and then I got interested in the history of children's poetry and my first you know major book was from the garden to the street 300 years of poetry for children then I started anthologizing my first anthology was I like that stuff that was 1984 and it was poems from many cultures so that's always been one of my great interests I, I love international poetry and particularly Caribbean poetry but you know I'm Scott and I love my Scottish poetry as well you know what I mean I love yes. the whole the whole thing I've done everything you can think of with children's poetry and it is my first and last passion so that although I've gone into other areas it's a children's literature generally literacy and, and so on when I got a chair which was quite late in life only a few years before I retired and I thought, well, I don't want to be a professor of children's literature because there's hundreds of them. No, my big thing is poetry. I'm going to be a professor of children's poetry. I mean, I couldn't be a professor of poetry because, of course, there's the Oxford one, so I wouldn't dream of putting myself in that category. <laughs> but yes, children's poetry it is. I believe, I, I, I just love the effect poetry has on children and what they make of it themselves. Mm. It's just wonderful. So has your work with the chair of, of being Professor of Children's Poetry involved working with trainee teachers and, and students to help develop their interest and so that it's continuing work into, into schools? How does that work? Yes, indeed, indeed. So when I moved from being a teacher, I became a teacher educator and climbed to the dizzy heights of being language coordinator. So built up a fabulous team of usually ex-teachers and uh, I think there were eight of us and we had I think about 150 students in each year group and we taught them every year and they were here for four years mm -hmm. so it was a lot of time plus the postgraduates that we were teaching as well and Poetry was always there, an integral part of it. And, you know, we devised the course together, but obviously I did the leading on the, on the poetry strand. Then, a few years in, I started to move in a, in a more academic direction as well. And I started researching children's poetry, researching its history, which is fascinating. And then was writing in a... I mean academic work to do with children's poetry but it was always wanted it to be accessible to anybody who was just interested I mean I hate academic jargon so uh, that was never one of my interests but yes turning students onto how to work with children on poetry has been one of my raison d'etres and you know right up to the time when I retired about eight years ago I always did the poetry lecture <laughs> and it was a huge, huge pleasure because often people are afraid of poetry and they think they can't do it and so on. And I'd say to them, it's the easiest thing in the world, turning children onto poetry. But, you know, here are some of the things you want to think about and here are some of the poets are really good at it and here are some of the anthologies and the collections you want to look at and, and here's ways of doing it and so on and so forth. And I love doing all that. And it was always great. You know, students would come up to you and say, it worked you know. <laughs> and yeah it was a huge huge pleasure so tell me what you're working on at the moment then well at the moment I'm working with two colleagues on the third edition of children reading pictures or picture books 
And this is something we started way back in 1997, 98, uh, where we developed this research project where we would invite children aged four to 11 to tell us how they read picture books. I actually had written a book about picture books before that with Victor Watson. So I'd already spent time noticing the way children read picture books and, and actually asking them questions about it and doing quite a lot of observational stuff. And we knew that children came up with the most fantastic interpretations. It was profound and the, the, they were really immersed in these picture books and so on. But we wanted to get much more detail. So we decided we would work with, in the end it was seven schools, and we worked with two other researchers who were friends of ours and we knew we were really good at that sort of thing. And it was quite hard to decide on which picture books to, to use because we wanted to go as young as four, reception children, and we wanted to go as old as 11. And so we decided in the end to go for the very young children, the oldest children, and then somewhere in between. And one of the people doing the research, Cathy Coulthard, she was working in London and she was an expert on diversity and, and uh, how that works with... Um... Well, interpreting the pictures, I suppose. It's because you're bringing your own culture, aren't you, when you look at a picture, yes, your own experiences and your family experience when you look at this picture. Yes, absolutely. And so that was a very positive thing that happened that we actually had loads of children who were multilingual mm. or just becoming bilingual who had just arrived in Britain because that's the sort of children that Cathy was working with. So we had three schools in multicultural London and we had several schools in Cambridge and one school in Essex and we worked with the teachers concerned and some of the uh, results really surprised the teachers because one of the things we found was that children who were not perhaps academically at that point doing particularly well but they might not have been very good at reading say mm -hmm but some of them could read pictures wonderfully well or read the interaction between yes. word and image, which is what picture books are yeah. about. So that was really exciting. So yes, the actual research took about a year because we, we went into all these schools, perhaps somewhere near the beginning of the school year, and we decided that it might be an idea to speak to some of the children again. So although we started with about 100 plus a few uh, children, we went back to maybe a third of that number six months later well, on the same book and found that there were some changes in the six months in terms of children's understanding of what was going on in these picture books. And Evelyn is Mexican and obviously uh, speaks Spanish and sooner or later the book was translated into Spanish and some other languages as well. And one of the great things about it was that we, we got such warm feedback from teachers from many parts of the world 
obviously liked this book and Evelyn and I have both written quite a lot of books on you know different areas within children's literature but this is the book that has warmed the heart of more teachers than any of the others so that's why they've asked us to do a third edition and we should have cracked it by Christmas we hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the righteous thing isn't it? <laughs> I have this line. I suppose it's because it's a practical thing isn't it that you, you read it and you think in my classroom, I could do that. I could sit with a child or a parent could sit with a child or in lots of our schools, it could be a, you know, a reading assistant who comes and, and just talk through it and what they're seeing on the page and what they're thinking and their vocabulary improves as a result and all you know, sorts of things. skills <laughs> and all of those things. And it's, yes. it's a, a handbook then, isn't it, really, rather than... An yeah. academic treatise. Yes, and yes, and those shelf. who want to read the the theories and all the rest of it, it's there in the book. But if they just want to to go with the practical bits, then there's mm. that too. One thing I haven't said yet is that because I'd done quite a lot of observing of children reading and talking to them about about picture books beforehand. In fact, I'd done a book with Victor Watson about children reading picture books, but. It wasn't in-depth in the way that this research was. But um, I, I knew that the little ones, I could see how absorbed they were in, in these picture books and how they were looking backwards and forwards and how they were getting hold of a friend and saying, look at this and so on and so forth. But when I asked them questions, even though they were quite gentle questions, they often sort of couldn't say very much. I'm talking about four or five-year-olds, mm -hmm. six-year-olds. And so... I said to the team, I think we should ask the children to draw in response to the book as well. I think we might find things out from the younger ones that they can't say to us. Well, it turned out to be the best thing we did <laughs> because we couldn't do it just with some of them. You know, if we were going to do it, we'd, we did it with all of it. And the children's drawings, I mean, first of all, they were so stunning. I mean, it's the cover. I love the cover. It's happened to be radio, isn't happened it? <laughs> to be an autistic child, uh -huh. which so that was very very special. Uh, but we had loads of absolutely wonderful pictures that the children did. They just got to do one picture in response of any kind they wanted to the, the picture books we were reading with them, and it, it became a huge focus of. The outcomes of this research because it, it was showing us so many things mm. that the children felt and from then on a lot of people have picked that up and run with it and there's been quite a lot of research and nowadays there's often video research as well on how children are responding to a picture book what they're saying to each other while they're doing it, and also while they're drawing mm. although videoing children these days is not one of the no, things. it's yeah. a, a difficult thing. Yeah. It's something we would have automatically done in our classrooms and now yes. it's, it's more of a yes. problem for it the is. reasons that we know. Yeah. Um, we didn't actually video. We uh, just taped everything. Mm. But we took field notes mm. and so on. I'm interested in when you're reviewing something that you've written and you're writing a new edition of this, and you're writing with a writing partner, but has that changed in your new edition? Yes, it has, actually, and it's very exciting because Kate Noble has joined us as a team of writers of this book, and Kate was in the original research. Oh, how interesting. Uh, she'd been 
my student on a children literature course that we used to run for undergraduates and she was absolutely brilliant at it and uh, then she got her first job in Cambridge just about the time when we were doing our research so obviously we wanted to use her in her classroom and Kate actually is an artist Oh, and she, she did art and education at Homerton College in, uh, when she was doing her degree. And she was so much help, not just as a class teacher where we were searching some of her children, uh, but in our analysis of the children's drawings. She wrote her chapter on that. And... Since then, I mean, Kate then did a, a PhD on children reading picture books. Oh. And yeah, it was excellent PhD. I was one of her supervisors. <laughs> and she went on to have three of her own children. And then she started work at the Fitzwilliam Museum. Oh, right. And right. Uh, so what we've done with the third edition is to give a lot more prominence to the sort of work that's going on in museums and art galleries, which has been fantastic in recent years. And we realised that we wanted to have quite a lot of that in the new book. So why not ask Kate if she would like to be Absolutely, a part of it? an and, obvious candidate. And she did. So <laughs> Wonderful contributor. She brings everything, doesn't yes, she? Yes, indeed. That'll indeed. exciting. Well, we'll I'll look forward to that coming up. Yes. I've seen on your desk then um, a large book called Children's Picture Books, which has a wonderful illustration on the cover, which I is know. based on butterflies and things, which yeah. is just great. It's absolutely beautiful, beautiful. isn't it? In fact, I, uh, I think I only met Martin Salisbury for the first time in 2000, and that's when we were, we were running a large uh, international conference on picture books, and we'd invited 20 of the most famous picture book illustrators in Britain, and in fact also organising an exhibition called Picture This, which was going out in the, at the Fitzwilliam Museum yeah. the, in the millennium. And Martin and I started talking. He was teaching illustration at Anglia Ruskin University. He's now professor of illustration there. And we realised uh, that we were both running master's courses with our students. All his students were superb artists and, you know, with degrees in art and so on and our students were looking at children's literature from the literary point of view mm. and we realised we had lots in common mm -hmm. and so we started to work together with our students just in a smallish way but for some years we held a joint evening lecture course for master's students and it was so interesting because there were our students who were specialists in literature and his students, of course, were specialists in art. And of course, they all of them drew all the way through oh, the lectures. <laughs> and, and as well as that, uh, we used to go in and watch the students doing their work at Anglia Ruskin. And we would ask them questions and so on. They would ask us questions. And we would talk to them about some of the things we were doing, going into school and, and working with children on picture books mm. and they would be showing us the sort of picture books that they were making themselves and yeah. loads of them went on to be published and, right. and some of them are really yeah. some of the finest <laughs> illustrators today Wonderful. known it's a very very good course so that got us going together 
And then when Martin thought about doing a book like this, this is the second edition actually right. of children's picture books, The Art of Visual Storytelling. Yes. Then he asked me if I would work with him on it. And mostly what I brought to it was what we had learned from children yes. about their yes, responses to picture to books. Pictures, yes. But as I was extremely excited and keen on illustration by then too, it was just wonderful what because we, we learned from each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that led to an exhibition at the FIT. Yep. And we called it uh, Picture This, Children's Picture Books at the Millennium Moss, yes. something like that. So we had Quentin Blake and Anthony Brown and well we had 20 illustrators and it was fantastic to you know to watch people going round I mean particularly watching children children watching children <laughs> Just, and yes. they would be so excited because they would see paintings on the wall and we made sure they were hung low enough for children to yes. and and the blurb about them was written in child-friendly and low down so that they could read about each picture and we had loads of copies of the books publishers were really good about that mm -hmm. and cushions around and yeah. all that sort of yes. thing and um, I remember a little boy jumping up and down with his book and going there's a picture up on the wall and it's in my book you know book. It's, it's and it's incredible isn't it it was it is. great uh, it was it was on for a few months and Every spare moment I had, I would just go in and watch people. Yes, yeah. It was fantastic. You know, you'd see sort of late teenage kids sort of sitting on the floor reading a picture book from beginning to end, or, or old people coming mm. in and so on. Oh, it was, it was amazing. But I also think that you've been um, involved in book awards and a judge in some book awards. Yeah, I've been a judge for loads of things to, um, to do with poetry. Yes. Uh, over the years yes. but just recently what was really exciting was being asked to judge a new award at the Bologna Book Fair okay so it's called the Bologna Ragazzi Award mm -hmm. and the new award was for poetry and illustration together it wasn't the best book of poems it wasn't the best book of illustration it was how the artwork interacted with the words i mean i couldn't have said no it, you would have, no it's designed for you it was designed it? absolutely <laughs> your name all over it uh, and, and it was international yeah. they said all the things i loved yeah. and uh it was a, a total revelation to me yes. total revelation some of the most wonderful work came interestingly enough from latin america oh. all over europe different parts of the world it was a very exciting experience we had to look at a lot of things in a, a relatively short time it was hard yes it was really really tough to do but it was so worthwhile and uh i, I a great experience i so hope they ask me again and i can um, be doing it <laughs> i hope so yes I, I do hope so i do hope so <laughs> i think it's just been wonderful to think about the illustrations and, and children's picture books, things that we often take for granted, 
and yet most people's homes have them. We buy them for the grandchildren and, and so on. And I think it certainly made me think about it. I mean, I'm an ex-teacher of literacy and I'm thinking about it in a, a different way just listening to you talk about it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your professional and personal passions with us. It's been absolutely wonderful and I shall go back and look at children's picture books in a completely different way, I Oh, think. Oh, please do, because there's nothing that children's picture books don't cover. There's no topic it doesn't cover. It will, it will tackle the hardest things in the world. They are the first galleries that children yeah. encounter. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode of Women Making Ways. We really would like to thank our guests today, Councillor Anna Smith and Professor Morag Stiles, as well, of course, as our contributor, Jan Moore, and her engineer, Tony Salford. We're always on the lookout for women who are doing interesting things. And if you know of a woman who you think we should be talking to, please do get in touch. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. So until next time, bye. Bye.